The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your words, whether they're in your word of uh, in the Word of God, the Bible, or through music and through song that you would help our hearts to say, show me, open up my eyes, fill me with your love. And we know that you're going to work when your word is open, when your Holy Spirit works in this place. Jesus, when you're here present with us, to open up our hearts and minds to know more of you. And we ask that uh, that would happen, it would be so, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, Amen. amen. Places of the passion, passion meaning suffering. Places, as your pastors, we, we got together, I don't know, months ago to, to decide that this is the direction we want to go through in this season called Lent. Last Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, begins 40 days of just more reflecting on uh, this journey that Christ took from uh, his life uh, after his preaching three years, now the last moments of his life from his suffering, his death on the cross on Good Friday, and then really to the resurrection, Easter Sunday, the empty tomb. Uh, As pastors, we're going to focus on the Gospel of Luke and, and talk about the last week of, of, of Jesus' life and really the places that he visited. Now, for Christians, um, we're familiar with this. And we could say, oh, here we go. I've read this gospel so many times over and over and over again. But every time, uh, we can have a different emphasis, a different focus. And so we're focusing on geographical places, places like the upper room. What happened in the upper room where uh, he washed the disciples' feet, where he uh, did, um, you know, instituted the, the Last Supper, places like Gethsemane where he prayed, where he was arrested, places like the trials before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, before Pilate, places like the Hill of Golgotha where we know what happened there on Good Friday he was crucified and where he died. And so those places can be familiar to us, but when Jesus, you know, enters a place, um, it's different. He never leaves it as he finds it. Geographical places, yeah, they were impacted, but more so the hearts of his disciples were transformed at that place and at that time. And I think it's it's, kind of cool to think about it this way, that we can remember life events by geographical places. If I asked you, where were you when 9-11 happened? Could you pinpoint that place? If I asked you, where were you when you got the call that your wife was going into labor? W- would you know that? If I asked you, where was your marriage proposal? You know, if I asked you, when was it that you received the news that you really had a bad Ill- illness or somebody in your family? Or where was it when a loved one died? Where were you? We could kind of, I'll use that social media term, tag. Hey, look out. Tag those places and link them to life events. That's what we're trying to do when we talk about places that Jesus went to, uh, that when he visited places, when he enters a place, he's not going to leave it the way it was. It's going to be changed, and he's going to be an impacting. I mean, the way he preached, how he healed, how he debated with the religious leaders, all those things we're going to talk about during Lent. And so as we begin this first sermon series, we're going to talk about the place, the upper room. The upper room. Now this upper room, if in Bible times, 
uh, people had upper rooms. Well, they're for rich people. I mean, you get, it took money to build an addition on, on the top, right? And, and then uh, to have this intimate setting where Jesus was. He planned and arranged all this with his disciples. But did you consider, what was the atmosphere like? What, what were the conversations that they were having? That's what we're going to talk about. I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to start, uh, beginning in verse 7. We provided Bibles for you in front of you. They're on page 1,637. If you brought your own Bible, go to Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to start reading there, um, beginning in verse 7. Are we there? Luke writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a water, a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. I'm going to stop there and ask, what, when, you, when I say upper room, you know, what comes to mind? Was it an intimate setting? Yeah, certainly. What, what, what happened there? Lord's Supper was instituted for, for us, right, for the first time. What else happened there? Well, there was a quiet warning that somebody was going to betray him. There was a sending out. There was a conferring of authority given to the apostles at that upper room. There's a lot of things that happened, but I want you to think about this. That upper room wasn't as peaceful or wasn't as calm as we might think it was because there was some dissension that went on. There was some strife. There was actually an argument of who was going, who was the, the greatest. And so Jesus had to come into that place not just the upper room, but the, a place in the disciples' heart to teach them it's not about being great, but it's about serving. And see, see the, the, the point is Jesus knows that his followers often get things wrong. They just do. I mean, it started out from the Old Testament followers of God where they put their, they elevated how they worshiped over the God they worshiped where they said, hey, let's put rules on top of rules so that we can look super righteous and it'll be all good. And then that continued into the New Testament to the Pharisees, right, and the Sadducees. But it wasn't about that. It was about really the God they worship, not these rituals. They get it wrong. His followers get it wrong. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, the, the, the Bible says that there was an argument about who was the greatest even in, in, in before the upper room. And so now here we are in this upper room, and it's an intimate moment, just days before Jesus is going to go to the cross, and the disciples say, who's going to be recognized most? Who's going to get the glory in the kingdom of God? And really, as God's people and people all over the world, we struggle with that today. We struggle with power. We struggle with position. Even in the church, we get it wrong. God's followers often get things wrong. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, that's why we got to come to church, right? Lord, 
Ground us in this word. Teach us what you're doing in this place called the upper room. We're going to continue reading in verse 14. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine. On the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be and who would do this. Also, verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest or to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I'm going to stop there. And in this upper upper room... Here's this preoccupation the disciples have with glory that needs to be transformed by God, by Jesus himself, into really humble service. It's a place of dissension. It's a place of brokenness. And Jesus needs to come and bring his salvation, his truth, his very own body and blood, his presence, to transform this room from a place of strife into a place of service. That's Jesus' intent. And so there's a lot of things going on in this particular text. But what I want to focus on is verse 24, about the dispute that rose among them as to which one of them was considered to be greatest. How is Jesus going to resolve this? Now, I'm a sports guy, and so I hear all kinds of arguments many times. ESPN, reading, whatever. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest what, in, in football, just because the Super Bowl happened? Is it Tom Brady now? Who's the greatest in hockey? Is it Wayne Gretzky? Who's the greatest in soccer? Is it Pele, Ronaldo, Messi? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in Christianity in our times? Is it Mother Teresa? Is it Pope John Paul II? Is it Dr. Martin Luther King? Is it Luther? Who's the greatest It's sad to say that that was the conversation that was happening just the night before Jesus was to be betrayed. I mean, can you imagine this? They partake of the Lord's Supper, the first supper. And yet, Luke records, they're having an argument. They want to argue, who's going to be greater? And he's revealing to them, I'm going to suffer for you. Your sins are going to be washed away, right? He's telling them these things, and yet they are self-focused. Jesus transforms that place of selfishness, of dissension, of strife, and he makes it into a place of peace 
and into a place of service. So again, when Jesus enters a place, he never leaves it as he finds it. And so we're going to realize tonight that the disciples and Jesus display two different kinds of faith. Two different kinds of faith. Faith mixed with glory and faith mixed with humbleness or humility or, or a, a really one of suffering. One faith is bold and larger than life. The other is mild and humble. And I'm going to use an analogy here that one of my homiletics professors uh, used at the seminary. And it's a description of, of these two types of faith. How many of you know the, of the name the artist Rembrandt? Rembrandt, he's a Dutch guy in the 17th century. And he portrayed an event of Scripture of the testing of Abraham. Remember when, when God said, you, you got to kill Isaac, your one and only son. And I want to show you this picture. It's a picture of uh, Rembrandt who, who, at the time that he painted this, this painting is six feet high, four feet wide. At that time in Rembrandt's life, his halls were, his, were filled with students. He was larger than life. And if you look at this, uh, you know, everything was going right for Rembrandt at this time. And if you look at this painting, you see that, you know, how, how Isaac, his chest is bared wide open, right? His throat is there for Abraham to do what God called him to do. And that angel is right there. It's a larger-than-life kind of painting. And it, it, it's, it's kind of... Rembrandt's glory at the time mixed with Abraham's faith, and they're kind of blended into one. And then, 20 years later, Rembrandt comes back and he does another drawing, and it looks like this. It's not six feet high or four feet wide. It's six inches by four inches. It's an etching. And as you look at that, what Maybe you don't know about Rembrandt is that his wife had died. Three out of his four children died. He's broken, and he's broke financially. And he comes, and you see uh, a man that his faith in God is humbled. It's just a total opposite. You know, his eyes, can you just see the eyes? They're sunken in. They're hollowed. He barely wants to have the knife there. It's almost like Isaac is on his Uh, You know, like Abraham's giving him his last blessing. Totally different contrast to that picture that you saw. And describes this servant of God who's been humbled, who's went through suffering, and his faith is hidden in the love for his son. It's a great description on how we kind of come back to this upper room and think about this faith mixed with glory and faith that's submissive and humble with the disciples. In that upper room, Jesus had to solve and resolve the, the disciples and their misunderstanding of what kind of faith that he wanted to give them. So here's the disciples. If you think about it this way, they spent three years with Jesus. They saw Jesus argue with the best of them. They saw Jesus just be in charge of creation. They saw Jesus do all kinds of incredible, miraculous things. And they're saying, they're asking, who's going to sit on your left? Who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to get the glory with you in the kingdom of God? Who's the greatest? And if you remember, uh, 
This is, I'll just show you from Luke chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, They went from village to village, the disciples did, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Can you imagine Jesus gave them the the power and the authority to preach and to heal? And could you imagine what they did and what they experienced? And now they're like, all right, something's happening. You know, at the end of his life, who's going to be with you, Jesus? And so I would imagine, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but this is just me and my interpretation of what they're doing here, okay? Can you imagine them saying, you know what, Thomas, I preached more than you. I preached the gospel. I, I drew larger crowds than you did. I, I healed more people than you did, John. Come on. I'm guessing that's the kind of thing that they're, they're talking about. And, and could you imagine if, if your pastors were arguing, you know what, Joe, I actually preached more sermons than you did. Paul, I baptized more than you. RJ, well, you know, can you imagine if we did that? No, we don't need to do that because everybody knows I'm the best. And the most humble. No, but, but really, that, that is what faith can be mixed with glory. And I, yeah, I'm a competitor, yeah? But I don't have a rivalry necessary with the other pastors. We're a team. We all got our specialties, right? And it's, it's a great thing to just think about this. But at the same time, here's what happened to me. Five years as a pastor, a missionary pastor in St. Louis... And I get a call from, from uh, the senior pastor here, Warren Arndt. Hey, would you consider coming here? Oh, really? You mean one of the largest, you know, the, one of the top ten of the LCMS churches uh, in worship attendance? Hmm, let me think about that. Yeah. Oh, who's calling you? You know, to my brother pastors. Faith Lutheran Church, wow. You think I had a little bit of faith mixed with glory? Yeah, I did. I admit it. Okay, but we know that God knows his followers often get things wrong. And even in the church, you know, which church has the best preacher? I want to hear that person, right? Which, uh, which person has the, the, the best stewardship program, right? Or the best children's ministry program, even church members. We, we often argue, you know what, the seniors, they really need to have this as importance. No, children's our future. That's where we need. You know, the church staff, you, we can't live without them. I mean, all kinds of stuff happens within the body of Christ that help us think about wrong things, about faith mixed with glory. We get things messed up. And Jesus comes into this upper room and he says, I'm going to reorient you to what's happening here. That is not what God's kingdom is like. Verse 25 through 27, Jesus' words were these. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the one who serves. I'm among you as one who serves. He says, you got it all wrong. You're thinking about my kingdom in a totally wrong way. It's not being the best leader of fortune, you know, being in the top Fortune 500 magazine or, or Time magazine's greatest leader to, to rule and dominate others, to scratch and fight, to be at the top. That's not it. Servants are the greatest in God's eyes. It's about humble servant. The last and the least are, are first. That's God's economy. And that's how ironic that this is happening the night 
before he is going to suffer and to die for the sins of the whole world. The disciples are caught up in this argument. And you know what? That's all too common for God's people. From the history of, from the upper room, all the way throughout Christianity, congregations, people have division and strife and they're broken up into fights and separating and, and we just get in to a mess regarding who's greatest, what gifts do we have. You know where it started one of the very first places? The church of Corinth. Do you remember the Corinthians? They were blessed with so much. The gift of tongues and miraculous healings and just all kinds of up-and-comers, right? They had all kinds of gifts. They were really blessed by God, but they were arguing about all these gifts. They were arguing about, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. And we, as a church, we get it all wrong. You see, the church can be divided because Satan wants Christians to fight against one another, and, they, and Satan uses God's own gifts for that, that he turns our blessings into fights, fights over doctrine, fights over uh, uh, the service in the church, fights over anything, and it become a wedge and begin a division, and slowly Satan separates and uses the good things of God to hinder God's work. And, and, and the thing of it all, it's just not the wasted time that happens. It's just not the arguments. It's not, not, not just the, ho- the hurt feelings or the relationships that happen or the anger. No, what's happening is Satan is blinding our eyes then to miss the very thing that Jesus wants us to get. To understand that his presence and his work on that night in the upper room was for eternity. It was for the sins of the whole world. He's trying to teach us, I want that second kind of faith in you, that submissive faith, that humble faith. Yet we can get so bent out of shape and disagree about everything that we just miss this. And really, this Lenten time is for us to refocus, to visit that place of that upper room, and then to visit the place in our hearts and figure out what's going on. How does God, through Christ, change our hearts. I mentioned earlier about the first argument those disciples had with Jesus back in Luke chapter 9. And he had an object lesson then that he put before the disciples. He said, I'm going to put this child right in front of you. You see this child, and at that time, the child really had no status. They were just kind of left by the wayside. It's kind of different than today where we say, you know, the child is so important. And that day, no. This child, Jesus puts, and the disciples are going, what? What are you trying to teach us? He's saying this type of humble faith in God is the kind of faith I want you to have. It's kind of like Rembrandt's second rendition of that that painting. That's the kind of faith I want to see in disciples, this submissiveness, this quality that is humbled, that has suffered some, that has served. That's what's important. He turns that place, really, the upper room, and that, that place where they first had an argument, he turns it upside down. And do they remember that at that point? They forget. And so do we. All the time. And we need to be reminded over and over again. And that's the blessing that as we come to church week after week, that God said he can work on the place in our hearts that needs to be worked on. Amen?
Jesus had to remind them as he reminds us, he's among them as one who serves. I can only speculate, you can only speculate how Jesus lived his life. How meekly did he do it? Did he have a home at all? No. He went around, did he ask for anything? No. Can you imagine this is the way Jesus lived his life, serving everywhere, healing, forgiving sins, and what it shows is that in this suffering, in this suffering, this service, that's really the greatness of God. He's telling his disciples, this is what the kingdom of God is like. That's what it's like. It's not like the world's. And yet, what do we know about what, Jesus, what happened to Jesus? He was rejected, rejected by his own leaders. Finally, he's rejected by his own disciples, isn't he? All of them flee, and the next day, they're gone. And guess what? He's also rejected by his own heavenly father. Think about that. When he's on the cross bearing the sins of the whole world, he's rejected by his heavenly father for just a time because that's what's needed, a perfect sacrifice, the wrath of God put on Jesus. When you think about it, when Jesus' arms are extended wide on the cross, can you imagine that that's his embrace coming to you? You and I are sinful people, and that's why he went to the cross, to die for our sins. When he rose again from the dead, that's when God is saying, look, that payment of sins, it's done. It's gone. The debt is paid in full for you. You're forgiven. You're his child. He loves you always, no matter how you come into this place. So I'm going to ask you, what's your focus on as we go to the cross. What's your struggle? How are you struggling with wanting glory, wanting a name for yourselves at your workplace, at your job, in your home? I pray that God would grow all of us, myself included, in the way of faith that's meek and that's humble for us. Amen? Jesus, when he enters the world, he didn't leave it as he found it. He wants to do that for you today.